0: This semester, I will have the joy of speaking five times to you. The Lord has laid on my heart that each of those messages is going to revolve around the theme of missions. There was a time in our past when the title of a sermon would basically have the entire thesis contained within that title. And so I'm going to follow that model throughout this semester. And in each of these messages, which will be, I hope, a faithful exposition... There will also be insights drawn from the life of a particular missionary that I hope will motivate and inspire all of us. So this morning, I would invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 16 and studying through verse 20. And the title of the message for this convocation is this. The Great Commission, according to Matthew's gospel, accompanied by insights from the life and writings of William Carey with the goal of a passionate global vision for our seminary. Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 16, Matthew writes, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He may have been the greatest missionary since the time of the apostles, and he rightly deserves the honor and the title, the father of the modern missionary movement. William Carey was born in 1761, and he died in 1834. He left England in 1793 as a missionary to India. He would never go back home again. He was poor. He only had a grammar school education, and yet he would translate the Bible into dozens of languages and dialects. He would establish schools and mission stations all over India. And yet I appreciate so much the insight of my friend Timothy George, who in his biography on Carey, calls him that lone little man. And then gives this description of this father of the modern missionary movement. His resume Education, minimal. Degrees, none. Savings, depleted. Political influence, nil. References, a band of country preachers half a world away. His resources, a weapon, love. A desire, bring the light of God into the darkness. A strategy to proclaim by life, lips and letters, the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. William Carey got Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 through 20. It was his farewell text to his church at Harvey Lane before he departed to India. Rebuked earlier in his life by the respected minister John Ryland Sr. with his now infamous words, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do without your aid or mine. Kerry, however, was undeterred, and he would later powerfully proclaim, expect great things, attempt great things. That is actually what he said first. Later, tradition would add the words from God and for God, because clearly that's what he intended. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. He would also go on to publish in 1792 his famous work, An Inquiry, into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. And in that work, he would pen searing words for the church in his day. And I would submit words that you and I need to hear today as well. Speaking of the great commission text before us, he wrote, This commission was as extensive as possible. And laid them under obligation to disperse themselves into every country to the habitable globe. And preach to all the inhabitants without exception or limitation. They accordingly went forth in obedience to the command. And the power of God evidently wrought with them. Many attempts of the same kind have been made since their day. And which have been attended with various success. But. The work has not been taken up or prosecuted of late years except by a few individuals with that zeal and perseverance which was with the primitive Christians by which they went about it. It seems as if many thought the commission was sufficiently put in execution by what the apostles and others have done that we have enough to do to attend to the salvation of our own countrymen and that if God intends the salvation of the heathen, He will some way or other bring them to the gospel or the gospel to them. It is thus that multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. Later he would add, I question whether all are justified in staying here. While so many are perishing without means of grace in other lands. These words in Matthew 28 constitute the last words of Jesus in this gospel. They were intended to be lasting words for you and for me. They are indeed the final marching orders of Christ to his army of disciples. Adrian Rogers says of this text, here we find the very heartbeat of the son of of God. And here we are told that, quote, we are all to bring all men by all means to Jesus and to do so by any cost. And so what do we discover in these final words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples that should indeed be the very heartbeat of your life and my life as well? Three truths will guide us very quickly. Number one, we need to acknowledge he has all power. The eleven disciples of minus Judas go to the north to Galilee. The NIV says to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. The scene is somewhat reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount, where in Matthew chapter 5, he goes up to a mountain. In fact, it's very interestingly, if you work your way through this gospel, you'll notice that the climactic temptation in Matthew 4, 8 through 11, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, the Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1, the Olivet Discourse Prophecy, Matthew 24 and 25, and the Great Commission of the Great King all take place on a mountain. Suddenly, they see the resurrected, risen Lord. And what transpires in the next few verses is very instructive and indeed demands our careful attention and consideration. They acknowledge that he has all power. We must acknowledge that he has all power. How do we do so? Number one, we worship him. Verse 16, the 11 disciples went up into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, number one, they worshiped him. but second, some doubted. They worshiped, but amazingly some doubted. Why? Well, perhaps they wondered whether they should worship this man at all. Perhaps they were confused about the whole agenda. They were confused about all that had transpired in recent days. Perhaps, though, they did not know how to respond given their past failures, given the fact that they had a terrible, horrific track record in recent days and so worship in the midst of doubt absolutely you and I are going to face doubt you and I are going to face situations where we're not really sure what's going on what's happening do I understand all that God is doing in my life no then worship am I confused unsure hesitating about God's plan for my life fine worship am I sorrowful Heartbroken, crushed, discouraged, depressed, in utter despair, perhaps at death's door. Then you worship. Yesterday, Dr. Reed represented us at the funeral of the wife of one of our trustees, Ed Litton. Ed Litton is a wonderful, wonderful, godly man about my age. Last Friday, his beautiful wife, Tammy, only 47 years old. Ran into the back of a stalled 18-wheeler and was killed instantly. Wife gone. Mother of three children gone. Sunday night, they had a wake. Four hours long. Yesterday, they gathered at the First Baptist Church of North Mobile. Confused? Yes. Heartbroken? Absolutely. But they gathered to worship the one who says All authority is mine in heaven and on earth. William Carey on his deathbed said this to the Scottish missionary Alexander Duff Quote When I am gone, say nothing about doctor Carey. Speak about doctor Carey's Savior. He is the Savior So worship him. But secondly, he is the Savior. He has all power. So hear him. It's interesting. Some form of the word all occurs four times in our text. And there in verse 18, you see the first occurrence where Jesus says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's interesting. Satan offered him an earthly kingdom in Matthew 4, but his father had so much more for his son. Not only would he receive an earthly kingdom, he would also receive a heavenly kingdom. It has been well noted that the words that you find here in Matthew 28, verse 18, echo the great Son of Man text in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, a text itself that has a missionary impulse. There the Bible says, then to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and glory. And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. John Piper in commenting on this text gets to the very heart of what Jesus is saying and I quote, Here we see the peak of power. Notice verse 18. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you gathered all the authority of all the governments and armies of the world and put them in the scales with the authority of the risen Christ, they would go up in the balance like air. All authority on earth has been given to the risen Christ. All of it. The risen Christ has the right to tell every man, woman, and child on this planet today what they should do, think, and feel. He has absolute and total authority over your life and over cities and states and nations. The risen Christ is great, greater than you have ever imagined. So here's our witness to the world. The risen Christ is your king and has absolute, unlimited authority over your Life. If you not bow and worship Him, trust Him and obey Him, you commit high treason against Christ, the King who is God over all. The resurrection is God's open declaration that He lays claim on every person and tribe and tongue and nation. All authority on earth is mine. Now listen, your sex life is His to rule. Your business is His to rule. Your career is His to rule. Your home is His. Your children are His. Your vacation is His. Your body is His. And I would add, your ministry and the location of your ministry, it belongs to Him. Why? Because He's God. You're not. We simply say, yes, sir, when we receive the marching orders. He says so. If you resist his claim, feel no admiration for his infinite power and authority and turn finally to seek satisfaction from thrills that allow you to be your own master, then you will be executed for treason in the last day. And it will appear so reasonable and so right that you should be executed for your disloyalty to your maker and redeemer. If there will be no appeals and no objections, your life of indifference to the risen Christ and of half-hearted attention now and then to a few of his commandments will appear on that day as supremely blameworthy and infinitely foolish. And you will weep that you did not change. Yes, we must acknowledge he has all power. But now number two. We must also obey his authoritative plan. Commenting on Matthew 28 and verse 19, John Calvin wrote, Now the wall is pulled down, and the Lord orders the ministers of the gospel to go far out, to scatter the teaching of salvation throughout all the regions of the earth. And yet, tragically, many in Carey's day as well as our own day, have imbibed the spirit of an eighteenth century anti missions hymn that went, and I quote, Go into all the world, the Lord of old did say, but now where he has planted thee, there thou shouldest stay. Care would have nothing to do with such a bankrupt and impotent theology as that. Rather he would say again in a letter, quote, I care not. Where or how I live or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls for Christ. While I was asleep, I dreamed of these things. Let me stop there. What do you dream of? When you're lying in your bed at night and dreams begin to fill your mind, do you think of the lost? Do you think of the nations? Do you think maybe God might send me somewhere to share the gospel with those who have never even heard the name of Jesus Again, while I was asleep, I dreamed of these things. And when I awoke, the first thing I thought of was this great work. All my desire was for the conversion of the heathen. Those of you who have studied this text know that there is a single imperative in these verses. It is the word, make disciples. And yet orbiting about that imperative are three participles, the word going... The word baptizing and the word teaching. And because they are in close connection to an imperative, they in essence receive the force of an imperative as well. In other words, he is telling us to go. He is telling us to baptize, and he is telling us to teach. So first of all, we obey his authoritative plan. How? We make disciples by going. He says there in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. In other words, this morning, there is no need to pray and ask if we should go and take the gospel to the nations. We've already been told you need to go. Again, I think John Piper nails it when he says, So, there you have the word of God from the mouth of Jesus. The lofty claim. All authority is given to me. The loving comfort. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The last command. Go make disciples among all the peoples of the world. What is clear then from this final word of Jesus is that he is trying to move us to act. He not only says, go make disciples, he also gives us a warrant for doing it so that we can know it is a legitimate and right thing to do. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. And he gives us tremendous encouragement and comfort and strength to go with the promise that he would go with us and never leave us. Jesus ended his earthly life with these words because... He wanted us to respond. He was motivating us to act. And so I ask again the question, do you this morning need a reason to go and take the gospel to the nations? The answer is no. You need a reason to stay. 1.6 billion people have never even heard the name of Jesus. Yesterday, I received a prayer letter from some of our missionaries in Southeast Asia in our 2 plus 2 program. I will just simply quote a part that will not give away their identity for security reasons. We have just returned from 10 days outside our country. We have joined a new team created to reach, now stay with me, to reach the 345 remaining people groups in South Asia alone that are completely unengaged and have over 100,000 in population each. 345 people groups, 100,000 plus population, everyone, no witness, no gospel. In fact, they said, did you get that? These 345 people groups have absolutely no one working among them right now and no known believers. These groups have a combined combined population greater than the United States of America. This blows our minds. It breaks our hearts. Being a part of this kind of work is 100% our heart's desire. It's what gets us pumped up. As you can imagine, this work is far too large for our team. We need your prayers. We need your partnership. We need churches to rise up, and we need more feet here on the ground. William Carey in his journal said it this way in March of 1794. Oh, what is there in all this world worth living for? But the presence and the service of God, I feel a burning desire that all the world may know this God and serve him. And so the Bible says, make disciples by going. The Bible says, make disciples by baptizing. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. How? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here is the badge of discipleship. Here's where biblical profession of faith takes place. Here's where one openly identifies themselves with Christ. Baptism, immersion, plain and clear, no debate there. In the name, interestingly, singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian formula, plain and clear. And yet what the Lord is saying to us is there is great joy. There is great blessing in initiating new believers into the church of the Lord Jesus as they identify themselves with him in baptism, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And yet the Lord would say, as did Carrie, that such would be found from every nation, all the peoples of the earth. What an incredible gospel. What an incredible mission. What an awesome assignment. Closing his inquiry, Carrie would say, What a heaven will it be to see the many myriads of poor heathens who by their labors, that of missionaries, have been brought to the knowledge of God. Surely a crown of rejoicing like this is worth aspiring to. Surely it is worthwhile to lay ourselves out with all of our might. In promoting the cause and the kingdom of Christ. And so we make disciples by going. We make disciples by baptizing. But we make disciples by teaching. He says there. Teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. You see, we do not go about the business of making mere converts. We are called to make disciples. Little Christ who observe all of his teaching. I like what the late James Boyce said. Robust disciples are not made by watered down teaching. And what we must have on the mission field are those who know the Word of God, those who can communicate the Word of God. Listen to me and hear me well. Never get sucked into the false dichotomy of being either a missionary or a theologian. It is a false, unbiblical dichotomy. Indeed, the best missionaries are good theologians, and you are not a theologian worth your salt unless you are also a passionate missionary as well. In fact, I would submit to you that you'll be a better theologian if you also have the heart and the passion of a missionary. You see, a hit-and-run approach to missions and ministry will not accomplish the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Now, don't misunderstand me. Stay with me here. I'm a fan of short-term endeavors, going for a week, going for two weeks, going for a month. I commend them. I believe they're valuable. But they are no substitute for those who give the totality of their lives, to plant their lives in foreign soil among a new and different kind of people, to teach them that they may teach others, that they may teach others, that they may teach others, and that they may teach others. Someone must go, someone must baptize, and someone must teach. We must obey his authoritative plan. But finally, we must also trust his amazing promise there in verse 20. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. William Carey was a great, great man. But he was a man just like you and me. And life brought him many heartaches and many tragedies. Francis Whalen, in commenting on his life, said, Like most of the masterminds of the ages, Carry was educated in the school of adversity. There were times when his soul was plunged into very deep depression. He would bury two wives. His first wife, Dorothy, sorrowfully went insane. He would bury three children. And others of his children greatly disappointed him. He lost most of his hair due to illness in his early 20s, and he served in India for 41 years, never taking a vacation, never taking a furlough. He would fight dysentery and malaria. Now, stay with me. And he did not baptize his first convert in India, a man by the name of Krishna Paul, until his seventh year on the field. How many of you could do that? Could I do that? Most of us whine like mules. If something great doesn't happen in the first month. Six months if nothing's happened. Must not be God's will that I'm here. And so we move. And we bail out. And we tuck our tails and run here. And then here. And then here. And then here. I'll tell you this. There are millions and millions and millions of Christians in India today who are glad William Carey stayed, who are glad that William Carey hung in there, who are glad that William Carey did not throw in the towel prematurely. What kept him going? He makes it clear in his writings. It was Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. You see, he had told a friend of his by the name of John Williams, pray for us that we may be faithful to the end. And he was indeed faithful to the end because he grasped the truth that first, the Lord has promised to be with you constantly. I will be with you always. And secondly, he has promised to be with you continually. He will be with you to the end of the age. And so carry, though he would walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Though he would be plunged into the dungeon of despair, though he would have feelings of total inadequacy, he just stayed with the work because he knew that his Lord was with them. He wrote a letter to his dad. And here you see something about the greatness of the man's heart when he said, I see more and more of my own insufficiency for the great work I am called to. The truths of God are amazingly profound, the souls of men infinitely precious, and my own ignorance very great. And all that I do is for God who knows my motives and my ends, my diligence or negligence. When I, in short, compare myself with my work, I sink into a point a mere despicable nothing. I'll tell you this, may God raise up more nothings like William Carey among this student body and this faculty in the days ahead. William Carey was a man like you and me. He experienced depression. He experienced discouragement. He had the same trials and difficulties that we do. From his journal, August the 27th. Nothing new. My soul is general, barren, and unfruitful. Yet I find a pleasure in drawing near to God. And a peculiar sweetness in His holy word. I find it more and more to be a very precious treasure. August the 28th through the 30th. Nothing of any importance except to my shame. A prevalence of carnality, negligence and spiritual deadness. No heart for private duties. Indeed, everything seems to be going to decay in my soul. And I almost despair of being any use to the heathen at all. August 31 was somewhat engaged more than of late in the things of God. Felt some new devotedness to God and desired to live entirely to Him and for His glory. Oh, now stay with me. Oh, that I could live always as under His eye. Feel a sense of His immediate presence. This is my life and all besides this is death to my soul. G. Campbell Morgan was reading Matthew 28, 20 to an 85-year-old lady Finishing the verse, he said, that is a great promise. But she looked up at him and with the light of sanctified humor said, that is not a promise at all. It is a fact. Oh, that the church of God could remember that fact. And so I move to close. Matthew 28 begins with a resurrection, but it ends with a commission. The words are weighty. The words are heavy they're not easily digested now listen to me listen to me this is a text that would naturally lend itself this morning to a rather emotional even high pressure invitation but i'm not going to do that because i do not want from any of you an adrenaline response i want a cardiac response i want a response that comes from your heart A heart that has carefully considered these words. A heart that has carefully weighed the one who voiced them. And then a decision as to what will I do in response to this great commission that the Lord has laid on me. Carey, again in his inquiry, said it so beautifully. I quote, A Christian minister is a person who is not his own. He is the servant of God and therefore ought to be wholly devoted to him. By entering on that sacred office, he solemnly undertakes to be always engaged as much as possible in the Lord's work and not to choose his own pleasure or employment or pursue the ministry as something that is to subserve his own ends or interests or as a kind of sideline. And before I go on, let me just say this. If you see your calling here as just sort of a sideline, two requests. Number one, Go somewhere by yourself and get right with God. Or number two, go home. Go home. What we do is not a sideline. What we do is mainline. It is the most important, crucial work on the globe. And if you don't see that, then your heart's not where it ought to be. And if you don't pursue that, then your motives are not what they ought to be. And carry saw it in his own day like I see it in our own. So many people who are fine with Christ as long as it's comfortable and convenient. And Lord, as long as you put me someplace where I'm okay, then I'm okay. But that's not the way the Lord works. And you see, I'm convinced with more and more conviction with each passing day. Too many of us are staying home. Not enough of us are going and again, to pick up with Carry, they see ministry as a kind of sideline. No, he engages to go where God pleases and to do or endure what he sees fit to command or call him to in the exercise of his function. He virtually bids farewell to friends, pleasures and comforts. He stands in readiness to endure the greatest sufferings in the work of the Lord, his master. It is Inconsistent. For ministers to please themselves with thoughts of numerous congregations, cordial friends, a civilized country, legal protection, affluence, splendor, or even an income that is sufficient. No, the slights and hatred of men and even pretended friends, gloomy prisons. And tortures the society of barbarians of uncouth speech, miserable accommodations in wretched wilderness, hunger and thirst, nakedness, weariness, and diligence, hard work and but little worldly encouragement should rather be the objects of their expectation. I question whether all are justified in staying here. While so many are perishing without means of grace in other lands, on the contrary, the commission is a sufficient call to them to venture all and, like the primitive Christians, go everywhere preaching the gospel. On his 70th birthday, just three years before his death, Kerry wrote his son Jabez, and here is his own humble evaluation of his ministry. I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. Can you believe this? I have not promoted his cause nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared till now and am still retained in his work and I trust I am received into the divine favor through him I wish to be more entirely devoted to his service more completely sanctified and more habitually exercising all the Christian graces and bringing forth the fruits of righteousness to the praise and the honor of that Savior who gave his life a sacrifice for sin he died on June the ninth. 1834 and on his tombstone in Serampore, india would be these simple words a wretched poor and helpless worm on thy kind arms i fall we need more wretched worms like william carey who will forsake all and give all for jesus southeastern seminary has a wonderful relationship with international mission board Dr. Reichen says this school is sending them the very best. He said, just keep them coming. Last year, he issued a statement about our school, and I think it will bless you and encourage you. I close with it. The increasing number and consistent flow of missionary candidates coming from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for service with the International Mission Board indicates a passion for missions that permeates the campus. Southeastern has emerged as a preeminent equipper for great commission fulfillment, not only in the training of future missionaries, but those who go to the pastorate, serve on church staffs, and in other areas of ministry are impacted and influenced by a focus on missions through studies in every department and every academic discipline. I think we're doing well, but I believe we can do so much better. And I know the Lord Jesus deserves so much better. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.